What is unconscious bias and how to identify it within yourself? How to trace your bias back to its origin? How to close the communication gap between intent and interpretation and so much more all coming right up. This is episode number two, eight, three with best-selling author and thought leader on unconscious bias, Pamela Fuller. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. I'm here because you want to become the best version of yourself, but there are so many things that you need to do in order to get there. And because it's overwhelmingly complicated, it's easy to lose focus, easy to lose the sense of direction, which is why so many people fall short of their true potential. But that's why I create videos, podcasts, and fitness programs to keep you on track to your best you. Go to nickcarrier.com to learn more. Today, I am super excited to bring you Pamela Fuller. Pamela is Franklin Covey's thought leader on unconscious bias and lead author of their recent book, The Leader's Guide to Unconscious Bias. This episode is super insightful around everything bias, how we can start to become more aware of our own, how we can take responsibility for them, and how to ensure that they don't lead us to diminishing others or hurting our own reputation. Before diving into the episode, be sure to follow me on Instagram at carrier underscore best you and follow Pamela at the Pamela Fuller and let us know what you think of the episode. Without further ado, here's to getting closer to your best you with the one and only Pamela Fuller. All right, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. I'm super fired up today to have the one and only Pamela Fuller join me today. Pamela, I just want to start by saying thanks so much for spending the time with me today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Of course, yeah, me too. So, like I mentioned to you right before the right before the podcast, I've interviewed a, a number of your colleagues before, and we've always had awesome conversations. And I know this is going to be um, uh, another one of the same. So, uh, Pamela is a it's Franklin Covey's thought leader on unconscious bias. And you're the lead architect of its organizational solution and one of the firm's top global sales leaders. And you've delivered the Unconscious Bias Work Session to thousands of leaders across the globe at this point. And you're the lead author of The Leader's Guide to Unconscious Bias, How to Reframe Bias, Cultivate Connection, and Create High-Performing Teams. And so I know that this is obviously, and you know, I, th- I think when I spoke to Casey, who, who got us in touch, we talked about how this is always a really important topic to to discuss and to talk about. And you guys were coming out with the book even before things kind of went down in, in 2020, if you will. And it's just become, you know, even more and more timely. As like I said, it's always really important to be talking about it, but it's even more and more timely and, and more and more uh, of a prevalent uh, conversation at this point in time. So I, I think it's a funny how that timing panned out. But anyways, the way I want to start today is kind of framing up the conversation in in regards to having you kind of define what is bias and and why does it exist in all of us? Yeah, definitely. So bias is a natural part of the human condition. It is part of our, the sort of supercomputer that is our brain is faced with 11 million bits of information in any given moment and can only actively process 40 of them. So there's a huge delta there, right? Like a big gap. And our computer brain wiring 
handles that gap through something called cognitive shortcuts. And these cognitive shortcuts are where bias lives, right? They are shortcuts and sort of workarounds to make quick decisions. And so there are many ways in which our biases serve us. They help us navigate the world, right? I couldn't speak in complete sentences right now or make any decisions about what I was gonna wear this morning if I didn't have bias. The thrust of our conversation around bias, the content in the book and the work we do at Franklin Covey is really thinking about what are the impacts of our biases, right? That our biases don't have real value, but they do impact our behavior and that behavior has a consequence. And in an organizational sense, that can be inhibiting or um, widening of possibilities, right? And it can impact how we identify talent and potential um, and how we engage with certain people and circumstances and whether they feel respected and included and valued or whether they feel ignored or limited or marginalized. And so I think it's important to note that bias is not inherently negative because many people feel when we start this conversation, they sort of come to it arms crossed and they're waiting for all the ways I'm gonna tell them they're a terrible person. Right. But it's not that at all. It's that this is how your brain works and our goal is to really understand or think about the impacts of our biases. And when they are negative, let's mitigate that. Yeah, no doubt. And really the, I feel like the root of changing a lot of your own behavior starts with the like acceptance and then taking responsibility and then actually taking action and you have to, it's not about trying to eliminate the fact necessarily that you have bias, if I understand correctly. It's more about just making sure that you are becoming more and more aware of it, more and more conscious of it and accepting of it and then start to take responsibility for, okay, what can I start to do now? Definitely, right? And and like sometimes we have, I mean, some of the biases we hold can be problematic, right? We might have a limiting view of a certain kind of person or a group of people. And when we identify that something is problematic, we have to sort of rewire that or hijack that shortcut. Right, right. So one of the things I kind of want to dive right into one of the examples that you bring up in the book, and because I, I think it's, I think it's something that I have probably and I think I identified it probably because I've maybe seen it myself. I can't think of any particular example, but I know other people probably get frustrated with themselves as well when maybe some of their unconscious biases contradict what their own personal values are. And you talk about uh, an example in the book where you had a, a newly hired woman and she was going to maybe take, or she was going to take maternity leave pretty early on. And you're like, what the heck? Like I just hired this person, but why is she going to be now taking maternity leave? There's going to be all this work that I have to do, yada, yada, yada. But then you kind of like, wait, like, this is like a, a value I believe in, like letting somebody have their time off and, and have maternity leave. And, and you kind of were able to take that, take, take a step back and gain perspective on that. So how can we start to have awareness of ensuring that maybe our unconscious biases are not contradicting our own personal values? Yeah. So in that circumstance, you know, we offered this young woman a job. I was thrilled to hire her. I was desperate to fill this role on my team. And she said, awesome. Can't wait to work for Franklin Covey. Also, what's your maternity leave policy? I'm pregnant. And I was like, no, you're not. Like, I just, my, my visceral response was so negative. And I think for me, that viscerally negative response was a surprise, right? It sort of slapped me mm -hmm. in the face. And it's important for us to recognize when we have emotions about what's happening. And so much of 
self-awareness is being able to feel your feelings, right? And recognize when you feel impatient, when you feel frustrated, when you feel blindsided, when you feel insecure or defensive, right? Recognizing these feelings and then sort of spending some time thinking about where those feelings are coming from for you is really important. And so we talk about a pra- like a mindfulness practice for leaders to really start to create space between what they experience and what that makes them feel. And in this circumstance, you know, I had a two-year-old when this happened and I had taken maternity leave and I have two children. I've taken maternity leave twice and I vote and donate money and sign petitions for a federally paid parental leave in the United States. That is what I believe. And so recognizing that I had this immediate negative response, this immediate like, right? (laughs) It's like groan. And thinking about what was driving that for me, and it was really about my own sense of convenience, and it was also hypocritical, right? Like, I've also read all the data that says that parental leave is what's best for families and what's best for employees, and that if you can support a parental leave properly, then the employee comes back that much more excited and you'll get better performance from them in the long run, right? Mm -hmm. And I, of course, took my own full maternity leave. So it was like this little bit of hypocrisy, this little bit of selfishness that sort of drove that visceral reaction. But recognizing that meant that I didn't inflict any of that on my new employee, right? Like I didn't treat Jordan in a way in which she was inconvenient to me because of this reality. I really thought critically about if I know that this is what's simmering in the background, how do I ensure that I treat her fairly and ensure that she feels really supported in this life event Um, despite what I feel. So it is this idea of neuroplasticity that despite all of the shortcuts that exist in our brain, our brain also has the ability to change, right? We have the ability to create a new neural pathway, a new way of thinking or looking about, looking, thinking about or looking at a circumstance. And in this case, being able to create that space between what I experienced and what I felt and then rewiring how I looked at that circumstance was really helpful. Yeah, and and I'm I'm glad that you said that towards the end because that kind of merges a couple of things a couple of ideas or concepts that I wanted to talk about today and that's kind of making sure that you can create that space between stimulus and response and I really like what you said in regards to it's a practice of self-awareness it's identifying how you feel when you feel it and why you feel it kind of a thing like you realize that it wasn't I'm mad that she's going to be taking maternity leave it's mad that it was just or upset because it was a surprise and it was going to be maybe a little bit of an of an inconvenience. So to kind of package that together, how can we make sure that like what are maybe things that you do on a on a daily basis to make sure that you create that gap between stimulus and response so you can identify what the actual emotion is and why and why it's arising rather than letting the unconscious bias or the quick emotional reaction get the best of you. Yeah, I think, I mean, certainly there are some tactical things that I do every day to help with that and that I recommend leaders do. One of them is building some vocabulary and language around pausing. So I think that we often feel, you know, conversation is so much like a game of double dutch. Like you spend your time like thinking of when you can get in and what you can stay. And many of us are uncomfortable in silence. And I think in a virtual environment, that's even more true because it's almost like, even if you're on a video call, it's almost like you're on the phone and like you don't have silence on the phone, right? And so I think ensuring that you have some vocabulary to say, I'm just thinking about that. 
right? Or, you know, I that that's a lot to swallow. Can we talk about that again tomorrow, right? Like just asking permission or signaling to people that you are in fact thinking about something and giving yourself that time to think and letting the silence sit, I think is really valuable. I also think spending the last 30 minutes of your day or the first 30 minutes of the next day reflecting back on the decisions you made and the meetings you participated in. So if you sort of pull up your outlook at the end of the day and look at all the meetings you had, what decisions you made, who was in those meetings and practicing these sort of observation skills, like who was in the meeting? What did they say? How did I feel about what they said? So if you create some sort of quiet time to do that thinking, it's interesting over time how much more you remember because you start to behave differently in the meetings. You start to lean in and pay more attention to what people's facial expressions tell you or what words they're using to describe a thing. And the final thing I think is really important is using sort of clarifying questions and seeking clarity because quite often in the interest of efficiency, someone says something and I think they mean this, and I just assume that's what it is. But I'm having a reaction to what I think I heard versus restating back to them what I heard. Am I, am I understanding this correctly? Or asking some clarifying questions. When you say this, what is it that you mean? Or can you give me an example of that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that just ensures that you both understand what's happening and are reacting to facts versus how you might feel and also builds this muscle of space. Okay, yeah. No, I, I really like a lot of that. And I want to make sure that we go... Um, in the near future, back to trying the importance of figuring out the origin story of why I have a certain bias. But to, to kind of go off of something you said right there towards the end of asking clarifying questions, I think that's really important because I think one of the biggest gaps sometimes in communication that we have is the intent that somebody has and the how somebody else receives it because there could be that gap between intent and interpretation, I feel like. So how can we make sure that that gap doesn't get the best of us? Like is clarifying questions one of the best things? And, and, but what if we can't have, what if we're not actually in, I know I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but what, what if we can't ask the person a clarifying question? What if we're not in the room with somebody, we're just observing something from a third party perspective. How can we make sure we don't let, uh, I feel like it, if we interpret somebody else's intent so much, I'm kind of like thinking about this as I go, we interpret somebody else's intent so much and we place the intent upon them when that's necessarily not the right narrative to be placing upon them. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. I mean, I think there's a reality when it comes to issues specifically of diversity, equity, and inclusion that we all have strong perspectives right? And so there's sort of a pendulum of how people feel about it. There's, you know, people who feel in the very extreme that these are like political issues or it's about political correctness and it's not a legitimate conversation to be had, right? And then there are people who feel on the other side to very extreme that diversity, equity, and inclusion are woven into every interaction we have. And this is, this is where I sit, right? <laughs> Surprising right. no one, um, but really woven into every interaction that we have. And that like th- discussing these difficult things is really important for you know creating a more equitable world and more equitable organizations, right? And so I think the sort of gnarliness of diversity, equity, and inclusion, the possibility to be misunderstood, to be accused of something makes us, remiss to ask for clarity. And it also makes it easier for us to overlay value onto something that we hear someone say. Um, 
So I think when we are in the room, being, you know, having the courage and vulnerability to ask clarifying questions, to speak up if something doesn't hit you right, to say, this is what I'm hearing, was that your intent, is really important. Um, and I think when we're not in the room, it's interesting to think about why we give some people the benefit of the doubt and not other people. Yeah. Right? Like there's some, sometimes you, you look at a circumstance and two people make a similar comment and for one of them, you give them the benefit of the doubt or you can justify that comment and for the other one, you can't. And so I think so much of this work is about looking inside yourself versus mm. like outside to other people. And I would ask that question is like, why do you think that this was inherently negative? Or why did you write that story about what it is that happened here without all of the information? Yeah. No, and I think with that, I kind of want to jump back to the importance of getting to the origin story because, like you said, so much about this is looking internally as to why you're having the certain feelings or certain biases that you're having. And you talked about an example when you were evaluating resumes, you found yourself looking for prestigious degrees from prestigious universities. And then it might have been your husband that said something uh, about, is that really the most important thing or does that really have everything to do with their performance with the with the potential job and stuff like that. And so you being able to gain awareness around, oh, like I'm putting a lot of high priority on this because that's kind of what I was taught growing up, that getting a prestigious degree from a prestigious university is the ultimate thing. Identifying that allowed you to actually start taking action and, and changing that thought and that belief. So with that being said, What's the importance of, of identifying the origin story from our, of our bias and how do we go about doing that? Yeah. So, you know, I have two boys and a husband who is often a little boy and <laughs> some, not to stereotype, but it feels like I have three boys who are obsessed with superheroes and, um, superheroes every superhero has an origin story right like we all know that spider-man got bit by the radioactive spider we all know that superman was like set in a rocket ship from a dying planet by his parents right like we all know the origin story and our biases have origin stories they come from a place right and so like i have a colleague who every time she describes in someone as ambitious particularly a woman she whispers that like it's a bad word she'll be like so-and-so is very ambitious and I really pride myself on being ambitious. I think it's good for me and my family and Franklin Covey, hopefully for everyone I engage with and rising tide lifts all ships. When you look at the origin of those beliefs, you know, the origin for me is as a first generation American, I was raised to be ambitious. And as the oldest child of a bunch of children, it was like, you have to be ambitious and achieve everything that you can achieve and work really hard um, and sort of prove that you deserve to be here because we came from the Dominican Republic to build this life for you and also like enhance possibilities generationally across our family, right? My colleague on the other hand was raised to very much value humility. And so mm -hmm. for her, ambition is arrogance, right? It is sort of thinking that you're too big for your boots. It is uh, rising above your station, right? That kind of sentiment. Now, there is merit to humility and there is merit to the intensity with which I was raised, right? There was, there's merit to both of those circumstances. What is important is that we both understand that. And as we engage with a third colleague who we've identified as ambitious or not ambitious, really understand how we're sort of overlaying that value on the other person. 
Mm. And is that inhibiting for them or is that enhancing for them? Are we creating the conditions for them to feel like they can really collaborate and, and partner with us? Now, when, in our conversation with my husband around education, you know, I, the thing that I value most in my team is work ethic. Um, I, just, I just want everyone who works for me to work as hard as I work. And um, I want there to be no questions about our team's ability to take over the world, right? Or to do whatever it is that we're required to do. Yeah. But my husband pushed me on that, right? This is a great example of a contradiction between my stated values, but my unconscious bias, now conscious, is if the thing you value most is work ethic, why are you looking at prestigious degrees in schools, right? So it's not to say that someone who graduated at 17 or 18 from high school and then went to a prestigious school and maybe had a work study job for a couple hours a week, but lived in on-campus housing and had scholarship money or it was paid for by their parents. It's not to say that person didn't work hard, but he said, you know, from my lens, the person who went to junior college and took six years to get their degree and had, was supporting a family and working 50 hours a week. I mean, that's work ethic, right? And this idea that I wouldn't identify that as work ethic is so contradictory. So it's really important for us to dig around in our own identity and explore what that means for what we value, right? And how we overlay value on other people. And doing that sort of introspection builds our sense of self-awareness and, and really highlights for us where we might have a limited view because we're taking something we believe is important and overlaying that to someone else when their, their life experience, their approach, all of that may be different. Um, and I think doing some exercise or activity, thinking about your own identity and the ways in which you identify yourself and what you're really proud of, and then thinking about what that means for how you identify talent and potential or what you look for in, um, in someone getting promoted or how you engage different members of your team. Is there correlation between your own identities and how you engage these different members of the team? And so those mm. questions and that sort of like internal work, I think is really critical. Yeah. And I feel like I'm very similar to you in the sense that I don't, I don't have a team that works for me, not yet, but I feel like I would be very similar in regards to like, I would hold work ethic in a really high esteem. And so to kind of go a little bit to your example, where one of your colleagues grew up where humility was a really important value and you grew up where, the, where ambition was a really important value. And I feel like I could, I, I, ambition was really important for me, for, for me and growing up. And I feel like I am very ambitious and I feel like maybe sometimes if I see somebody as not as ambitious, then I will think less of them sometimes. How, how can I make sure that I, don't do that and I can find value in them being ha having their value and and seeing the importance of that for them yeah I think it's important to you know, we talk a lot in the book about connection and like when I identify someone as unambitious, I have a story about what that means, right? Like I have an automatic story around like, oh, they're not ambitious, like they're not serious about their work and they don't have big goals. And so they're not, right? It's like a whole narrative. And I think really engaging with someone meaningfully around what their career aspirations are and why those are their career aspirations is really important. I have a colleague who 
like identifies as unambitious. And as he and I talk more, it's not that he's unambitious. It's that he's a single dad to a five-year-old. And he's really just decided like he wants to do good and meaningful work, but he, as a single parent with no involvement from his son's mother, like there's a certain volume of hours he needs to be able to dedicate to his child. And there will come a time when his child is older and he can do some other things. But at the moment that balance is what is most important and he's prioritizing. Mm -hmm. And that story is something I have wells of empathy for. Whereas like just this idea that someone be unambitious, I have less empathy for, right? Or it might be, you know, I, I work with people who like their work is really important to them, but they want to retire early. And so they're just like, they know that they're not going to be in an organization to be the CEO. They just want to do meaningful work and really, you know, put away their money so that they can retire early and, and live their best life, right? For 40 yeah. years. So like all of that is admirable. And it's important for us to recognize that just like we have origin stories, so does everyone else. And if we want to better understand their perspective, we need to seek out their stories too. Yeah, no, I, I really, that's an amazing story. And in regards to the, the, the single dad with the, with the five-year-old, because I think that is really revealing as to you need to be curious with them and ask them why their value is their particular value. Cause it's not that he's just not ambitious is that he has these other values and these other things that he needs to allocate his time to. So I think that is a, a really important thing and, and really eye opening to me as to like figure out why that is their, their particular value and make sure that'll really make sure you don't negatively act upon your bias of, of their value. Um, so one of the things that I was, I'm, I've been fascinated about in regards to communication and there's a really great story in the book from uh your one of your co-authors mark murphy where he start he goes to this mexican restaurant and he's been working on learning spanish and he wants to he's like oh it's an opportunity for me to practice speaking spanish while i'm at this restaurant and he i think maybe sitting at the bar and he starts speaking spanish to the the woman behind the, the counter and she was offended by it and I feel like that's a story that a lot of people probably have have either done before, I have heard somebody doing before, and maybe sometimes the person behind the counter was welcoming to it, sometimes they were offended by it. But you guys talk about how, you know, he was in they were in two different parts of their brain. He was in his thinking brain, maybe the more advanced part of the brain. She was more in her primitive brain and maybe acting a little bit more emotional from that. And so kind of the my question around the situation is is either of them at fault of the situation or like what should have been done differently yeah no I think you know to your point earlier about intent in that circumstance both of their intent was good right like right. Mark wanted to practice his Spanish he had someone to practice Spanish with and he thought I'm gonna just jump in right and good for him because like learning a language is not easy and uh, we often, those of us who speak other languages, you feel some insecurity around like pronunciation and, and not sounding native and all the things. Um, and for her part, she had probably, I mean, we know that immigration in the US is a challenging subject and people have right. really strong views around immigration. And the last administration really brought up like a lot, you know, even, even more, uh, strong positions and, and as the child of immigrants, I have strong views on immigration. And so thinking about, you know, when we are shifted into that primitive part of our brain, we often feel defensive. 
And I'm sure that for every well-intentioned person like Mark talking to her, there is someone who tells her she needs to speak English. There is someone who questions her ability to speak English. There's someone who signals to her in some way that she doesn't belong here, mm -hmm. right? And so it is natural that based on their respective experiences, they responded to that circumstance differently. And I think it's important to recognize that as we think about bias, it's not for me to say whether someone else feels biased against. And so I think it's important when, we, when it is clear to us that someone is offended, that should be the priority, right? Like, cause we're clearly not connecting. And so thinking about how, how we pivot in those circumstances to try to sort of right this wrong. It was challenging in that circumstance because it was like a service interaction, right? So it's not that he had like a long time to repair it, mm, right, right. <laughs> right? Right, but um, but thinking about, I think it is important to prioritize thinking of like empathy, which we talk a lot about in the book. It's important to prioritize when people feel marginalized in some way, how can we sort of shift out of that perception and really make our intent clear? And it could be as simple as declaring our intent, which is what he did in that circumstance. Um, or it could be, if it's a longer term relationship, it could be more leaning into curiosity to better understand. You know, Anne in the book tells a, a similar story from, an, from the other perspective around this question, where are you from, right? So as an Asian American, I mean, she's a Jersey girl. She always says that she identifies as such. Her parents are, uh, were born in Taiwan and she's a second generation American, but she gets this question, where are you from? And she's like, New Jersey. It's like, no, really, where are you from? Well, right. you know, I live in Texas now. No, where are you from? Well, I, are you talking about my ethnic background? Like I'm, I'm American. My, you know, my ethnic background is from Taiwan. And it is this like consistent, I don't know, sort of badgering that signals that like she doesn't belong here. There's some question, right, about her place in the world or in this country um, and that I think is, is an interesting sort of juxtaposition to Mark's story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it definitely is. And so... I feel like to take a little bit more of a, a general uh, a general communication topic in regards to this is something that I've talked about in my family a decent amount actually like thinking that the responsibility in a conversation is like 50-50 in regards to and kind of intent and interpretation because and one of the things that I think about a lot is in regards to social media. So if somebody posts something and I have a negative reaction to it, that's not necessarily their fault. It's, it's, it's a lot of that is maybe on me. And so I can take the responsibility of, or I can, I can be aware of that, accept it and unfollow that person or whatever it is. Um, and so it's not their responsibility necessarily to say anything differently it's on it, it, that was their 50 percent is doing it and my 50 percent responsibility is doing something about it on my end and so i'm not sure of the exact question i want to ask from it um but i i feel like it probably has a little bit of different connotation in the workplace because maybe there is a higher level of responsibility on leaders to clarify their intent than maybe there is on somebody who's a subordinate and and taking responsibility for their portion of the conversation but i don't know if you've ever had much uh, conversation or talk around that like the idea of having 50 50 responsibility for taking in uh, 
part of the conversation and giving part of the conversation. We're going to take a brief pause in the interview really quickly because if you're somebody who is looking to achieve a fitness goal or maybe you lack motivation to get into the gym, you lack some structure in your in your weekly routine, or maybe you've been wanting to get back into the fitness game and get back to maybe your weight loss goal or whatever goal it is, and you're not really quite sure how. If that sounds like you, my 10-week program is for you because I help everybody set a very specific goal. Then we create a very specific strategy of the two or the three things that we need to do every single week that we believe are going to make us successful with our overall goal. And that'll help you execute and I'll help you hold you accountable every single week. So you do the things that you kind of know you should be doing, but you're, you're not quite doing them right now. And that's what I've done with hundreds of people over the past 365 days, over the past a little over a year. And I want you to make sure that you are part of it as well. And enough for me, I want you to hear from the people who have done it in the past, what they've got out of it and, and why they did it in the first place. So here you go. I cannot say enough good things about Nick's 10 week program. I have always been somebody who has worked out but never really had a fitness goal. If anything, I really wanted to achieve. It was more so just to stay in shape. And Nick does a great job of helping you not only define the goal, but also realize what steps you need to take to get there. Tomorrow, as of my weigh-in week nine, I hit my goal of losing 25 pounds in 10 weeks. Just the whole methodology of the program with it being one big goal, followed by some smaller goals to help me reach that big goal and then the weekly commitments to help me reach those smaller goals. During these times, it's helped strengthen my mental health and strengthen my focus and really made sure to hold me accountable to my goals. I'm so happy that I was able to hit the goal and uh, so much so that I decided to do another 10 weeks with Nick. I would recommend it to anybody, no matter what your goals are, if it's weight loss, if it's running a shorter mile, if it's anything you would like to achieve, I think that this program gives you the tools to set yourself up for success. But one of the biggest benefits for me, and the biggest takeaway I had was one I wasn't necessarily set out to improve upon, and that was building more self-confidence and really instilling self-accountability. The program was great. Um, I'm doing it again a second time to continue my weight loss, and I just can't recommend it enough. So again, guys, if you lack motivation, if you lack structure, if you want to get back into your fitness game, but you're not really sure how, then I want you to make sure you go to nickcarrier.com slash 10-week programs. Again, nickcarrier.com slash 10-week programs to learn more. For now, let's get back to the interview. So, you know, I, I see I see it a little bit differently. I do think, so, so much of our work at Franklin Covey is focused on what we call an inside-out approach. And so it is just 100% focus on what is in your control and what you are, can do in a circumstance. And so I think, of course, leaders have sort of a higher bar in terms of communication, but I would venture to say, I mean, you can have a colleague who makes you miserable too, right? Like you could have, or you could have a colleague who makes a, a circumstance really difficult or, you know, has you feeling marginalized or biased against um, or inhibited in your own possibilities or how you can show up at work. And so I think it's really, an, and I think if, if all of us, as we think about diversity, equity, and inclusion, focus on what is in our circle of control in that circumstance, then, then it results in 50-50, right? Like it results in a positive outcome. But I think it's important in these conversations. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about like what someone else should be doing. I spend a lot of time thinking about how there's, trying to put myself in their shoes and like understand how they're seeing the circumstance. And I think 
I mean, so much of my work coaching people on diversity is also about meeting them where they are. So my lens is sort of colored with that too, is like, I just can't make anyone do anything. I have to understand where they are and try to persuade from wherever that is. So I think about communication through that lens. It's like, if someone seems off put by something I've said, then I can, I have a responsibility to understand what was off putting and to clarify. And it could be that we just disagree, but like, I wanna make sure that they understand my perspective and that I understand what was off putting to them. Or if someone is, like if I feel marginalized by someone's behavior, I'm sort of triggered by someone's behavior. I have a responsibility to say something about that. Um, and of course, power does come into play. Like, am I, you know, if, if our CEO says something that hurts my feelings, am I going to bring that up? Maybe not, right? <laughs> yeah. in, my, in my case, I would, but like in our, you know, in, in, as we think generally about organizations and like hierarchy, like there's hierarchy at play and, and there are circumstances where it's too risky for us to bring it up. But if we are able to, based on the level of formal or informal authority and influence we have, I think we have a responsibility to bring it to that person's attention in a kind way that helps them get better, right? Yeah. No, I, I, I like what you said in regards to you spend time thinking about what you can do, not necessarily what somebody else should do. So if, if you are on the delivering part of the conversation and you see somebody else is maybe taking it negatively, then you have the responsibility maybe to uh, give, show them a little bit more where you're coming from, give them more, a little bit more what your intent is. And uh, if you're receiving part of the communication and you don't like it, then you have the responsibility to speak up and say something about it. So I think that was really good. Um, one of the things that you guys obviously talk about is, and you, already, and you mentioned it a little bit, is cultivating connection. And you guys talk about empathy, curiosity, and courage in order to, you know, cultivate connection. What does that look like on a day-to-day basis? I know it's a big, I know it's a big idea and you kind of go into each of them in depth, but what, what does empathy, curiosity, and courage kind of look like on a day-to-day basis? I think empathy and curiosity looks a lot like time. So it is like this idea that you look at your outlook and for many of us, like, with COVID, you've got your commute time back, but somehow that's just been filled with meetings. And so, yeah. like you, right, you have, you, you've, I have days where I wake up at, you know, I'm, I'm logged in at 8 a.m. and I have meetings until, you know, 7 p.m. And we spend those meetings, we're trying to be efficient. We're all struggling with like Zoom fatigue and we have, you know, our wells of empathy are sort of dried up because it's just been such a tough year. And Empathy and curiosity looks like spending the first 10 minutes of a meeting doing a check-in with everyone on, on what on the question you asked me before we started recording, right? Like what made me smile today? Um, or what they're most concerned about or what some of their goals and aspirations are, or what they've learned from COVID or what the first thing they want to do post-COVID is, right? When it's safe to yeah. get on a plane again, where are you going, right? Those kinds of things. And and so I think empathy and curiosity is is building rapport right it is the reality that we are all whole people walking around in the world and um it is the Maya Angelou quote that like people won't remember what you said or did but they will remember how you made them feel and so being asked those questions investing some time in connecting with people and better understanding their perspective I think is really valuable I also think empathy and curiosity in a day-to-day looks like thinking critically about where you get information and what kinds of stories you expose yourself to. Mm. It's a reality that 
like our personal networks, at least as it relates to race and socioeconomics are very reflective of ourselves. And so as we think about this competence of diversity, equity, and inclusion that is expected of everyone, the only way that you build competence is like by paying the price for competence, right? You have to like, you don't just show up and run a marathon, you train for the marathon. And so if we think of DEI as the, as the marathon, you know, what are you doing every day to expose yourself to something that you wouldn't normally be exposed to, right? Do you, mm. you know, I, I don't have a friend who's a trans person, but I can watch Pose on FX and like better understand the experience of trans people. I can read The Atlantic in an article that a black executive woman wrote about anger and the feedback that she's gotten over the course of her career about being angry, right? I can um, identify a mentor who is not a black woman like I am and really better understand their experience and, and right? Like there's all these things I can do to expose myself to stories that are not my own that builds empathy and also opens my aperture for curiosity. And I think courage looks differently depending on the level of formal or informal authority that you have. So it right. is courageous to say, I had a viscerally negative reaction to um, this employee telling me that she was pregnant, right? It's, it's not my proudest moment, it's not my finest hour. So it's courageous for us to recognize that we might have problematic beliefs and to talk about them and identify them and, and put them out into the air. It's sort of like, um, how in Harry Potter, we called Voldemort, he who must not be named. But when you right. said Voldemort, you like took away his power, right? So we take right. away the power of these biases when we're willing to talk about them. Courage is also, if you are on the receiving end of bias, it is speaking up or taking care of yourself or getting a coach or mentor to help you navigate that circumstance, right? It is like making a proactive choice around what that means for my career and how I engage or how I show up in this, in this circumstance. And courage is throwing myself in the fray of something that doesn't impact me at all by being an ally, right? Or a co-conspirator. How are we going to make change together, even though I'm not necessarily negatively impacted by this? And it's also advocacy. It is the reality that when women and people of color advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion, it hurts them over the course of their career because it feels like they are self-promoting. But mm -hmm. when... Um, a white man advocates for diversity, equity, and inclusion, it helps him over the course of his career because it seems benevolent, right? He's advocating for something that doesn't directly benefit him. Um, and so I think courage is pushing on the boundaries of what is comfortable to, you know, make change happen. Yeah. You know, all, all of that was, was great. You did a, a great job identifying things for empathy and curiosity. And, and then right there were courage right there at the end, what, I think I've thought about that before or heard that before, but it kind of just shook me when you said it again, how, you know, if a person of color or a woman advocates for the, uh, you know, further the conversation on diversity, equity, and inclusion, then they're, it hurts them, but a white person can do it and it helps them. That thing about that is just mind blowing. It's just mind blowing. Um, how what does it look like to start changing that like how can we start not having it hurt people of color and or any marginalized group yeah i think it's twofold like i think first um it is taking that push seriously 
So like there are certainly groups and, and many executives who like they hear about diversity, equity and inclusion and there's like this collective eye rolls like, oh, you know, that what does that have to do with like the results that we're trying to achieve? Or this feels like it's political correctness or, you know, a way to tell me I don't deserve to be where I am or like all kinds of things, right? Like people have a lot of baggage on the subject. And so I think the first step is letting go of the baggage. Like it's not about you. It's about this idea that each of us has a right to work in an environment where we are able to contribute our best, right? And feel this sense of value and inclusion and respect and belonging, um, because we spend most of our lives at work and that should be a positive experience and we should feel like it, our work experience enhances our, our possibilities. So I think letting go of the baggage and taking, taking seriously when people bring up diversity, equity and inclusion, you know, trying not to, trying to stay out of the defense mode and more in the problem solving mode, right? That like prefrontal cortex, logical part of our brain. And I think the second is like, I think people who are in the majority, I mean, they have eyes like everyone else, right? They can see the demographic makeup of a team and that we should work to be more diverse here. They can see like, say you're, you're a hiring manager, you're hiring for a position, you get an applicant pool and you see that it's not diverse, throw it back to HR and say, I, I can't really make a hire until I get a diverse slate of candidates, right? Um, so I think it is the ways in which people in the majority decide that this is also important to them and speak up about that, then it becomes like less dramatic, if you will, when a woman or person of color brings it up. It becomes, you're, you start to normalize this, these questions in the organizational culture. Yeah, no doubt. And, and to kind of go a little bit back to the first thing, a lot of people who are listening to this, you know, there might be some leaders, but a lot of people are going to be a little bit younger and, and going to be leaders at some point in their organization. So it's good that they're getting a lot of this information now so they can start to train themselves to be ready for uh, and set themselves up for success. So like you said, a lot of people might have eye roll, like eye roll when diversity and inclusion comes up because they think it's kind of this soft topic. What does this have anything to do with my results? And Stephen M. R. Covey, uh, your colleague, talks about how he has to change the narrative from this idea of trust. It's not a soft topic. It's a hard topic. It actually has monetary um, outcomes to it. And that's essentially leaders are going to have to be convinced and really believe that really implementing more diversity, equity, and inclusion are going to help them and their business achieve more results, make more money, that sort of a thing. So what do you what do you do in regards to ramming down, ramming not ramming that down their throat, but showing making them believe that? Yeah. You know, I really struggle with this question because I think business case is such an, like, it comes up so much, but like the data is clear. Like the data is clear. The data is Googleable. Right? Yeah. The data, like it is, I mean, publicly traded companies who have diverse boards, they log more earnings and results than publicly traded companies without diverse boards, right? Diverse and inclusive teams make better decisions. They make decisions more quickly. They're more likely to log patents and, you know, are better at innovation, right? Like there's just all this overwhelming evidence. And so I think I bristle, frankly, when people say like, well, show me the business case. It's like, it's just, it's everywhere. Like the, the, the research has been done, um, and the 
research is clear, right? And and if that if that's not enough, right? If we think about what happened to Starbucks, what happened to Sephora, right? Like what happened to these companies that had very public challenges around diversity, equity, and inclusion, like that should be sufficient business case. And I think there's additional information that more and more consumers are taking into account diversity, equity, and inclusion as they make spending decisions. Even B2B, businesses are looking at, you know, I can only partner with an organization who reflects this value. And as we look at millennials and Gen Z, diversity, equity, inclusion is a significant part and, and social responsibility more broadly is a significant part of their employment decision in terms of where they're going to spend their time. And so, like, I don't know why we would need to say more than that, right? Like that yeah. feels quite compelling to me. There's lots of things we do as a business that doesn't have that much research and data behind it, I think. So I always bristle at the question because I feel like it's some it's a form of like gaslighting, right? Like we don't see, I mean, maybe I feel that way about like, the climate as well. It's like, why do we need to talk about this? Like, it's a question. It's so clear. Right. It just snowed in Texas. Yeah. <laughs> right? like, so um, anyway, that's my two cents on it. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. No, I, I love it. I love it. Um, so down last couple of questions. And one thing I'm intrigued about from a, from a personal level, you see, we talked about beforehand, how you have two boys, 11 year old and a four year old. Obviously they're, they're not, in the professional world yet, but what are you doing now and what are you going to continue to do moving forward with them and, and teaching them in regards to how to handle bias that might come their way and or making sure that they don't have, that they're aware of maybe their own biases themselves? Yeah, I think as a parent, it is what is really interesting is you never want, I mean, for, for most kids, I believe for my children that I should be, their dad and I are their biggest cheerleaders, right? Like we are the person at their back and at their front saying, you can do anything that you put your mind to, right? Like you are capable of anything. And anyone who tells you different is wrong, right? Like anyone who limits your possibilities or makes you feel like you have less value than you have is, is incorrect, right? And so I think there's this, my role is to really build them up and bolster them. Now, the balance there is like the data shows, right? That they are like over the course of their lifetime likely to make less than their white peers, despite, you know, the zip code we live in and the schools that they go to and our, you know, what our W2s say and the fact that they come from a two-parent household, right? Like the, the number of books in our house, like all the research around outcomes for children, like we sort of check all those boxes, but because we're black, their possibilities are less than that of their white peers. And I think it is important that they understand that reality without seeing themselves inside of it, if mm. that makes sense. It's like the world is unjust and the world is unfair, but you are beautiful and perfect and capable. And your dad and I are here to ensure that you always feel that and to you know, build whatever pathways we can for you. Um, so I think that that, that is my hope for them. My hope is that in the work that I do every day that doesn't involve them, I'm creating a world that is more ready to accept them and more ready to lift them up versus what we so often see with Black men where they feel um, and are you know, diminished in so many ways and undervalued. Um, and I think when I think when, 
so much of what we've talked about and what I write about is about like people interaction. And so I use a lot of this language with my children and I hope that by modeling the behavior of asking clarifying questions and being curious and you know talking about what's going on in the world and society but also at work, you know, over the dinner table identifying bias, right? And and talking about circumstances where it has shown up and what things have done, people have done to mitigate it. I hope that that just like surround sound to their lives ensures that they're aware of their own biases as well. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, awesome stuff. And I know you're going to uh, do a great job of being their, their biggest cheerleaders moving forward uh, for sure. But I want to make sure I, I get you out of here on time. So before I ask the last question, Pamela, I just want to acknowledge you for really attacking this this issue head on in 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 the right way in the sense of like bias isn't inherently bad we're all going to have it but we always we have to start with the self awareness we have to start with identifying it and accepting it and then taking responsibility and taking action in a, in a way that doesn't diminish other people and doesn't hold other people back but actually opens more doors for people and, and really opens more doors for ourselves be, because of that as well. Um, so I think that the way you're going about it is just is awesome. Thank you so much, Nick. Of course, of course. Well, I know that a lot of people are going to want to make sure that they go learn more about you. So go to franklincovey.com and you can, you can find uh, her and you can find the leader's guide to unconscious bias, how to reframe bias, cultivate connection and create high performing teams. Is there any other place where people should go learn more about you and what you're working on and, and how they can start to identify their own biases and stuff like that? Definitely Franklin Covey is the first stop. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn um, or Instagram and I'm happy to connect via social media. Awesome, awesome. And obviously you can get the book uh, on Amazon and anywhere you buy books. But um, well, last question here. Pamela, is I think that getting closer to the best version of yourself is a constant journey and it's also a unique journey. I think the way that I'm going to get closer to the best version of myself is going to be a little bit different than the way that you're going to get closer to the best version of yourself. So for you personally, if you could currently work on or do three things to get closer to that best version of yourself, to get closer to that best version of Pamela Fuller that you could possibly be, then what are those three things that you could currently do or currently work on? Um, so I think the first is that I, I am a rather intense person in terms of my work um, and like how much time and energy I spend at work and, and I'm like moving forward, right? So I think sometimes I fail to like enjoy the moment as much as I could. So I think mm -hmm. my best self spends more time just really like reveling in how wonderful my life is each day. Um, I also had a health event in November that slowed me down physically. So I used to run three to four times a week and I'd run like a 5k and I haven't really done that since November. So the best version of Pamela does that because it's the only place that my mind is clear. And it really is like my meditation is to go on this run and just like stop thinking and, <laughs> and feel, feel the strength of my body in every stride. Um, and I think the third thing is really about my boys. Like Ta-Nehisi Coates is an author who I really admire. And he talks about how so many black parents parent from fear. And so my goal is to never, and I, and I succeed at this some days and I don't other days, right? My, my oldest is on the autism spectrum. And I always worry just about like his social interactions and, and, and his life. Right. Um, and so I think ensuring that I am not parenting from fear, but instead parenting, you know, more positively, I think is 
the third thing that I would work on. Okay. Awesome. Well, the, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, those are uh, three great things. Awesome conversation today, Pamela. I appreciate your time and that's all we got. Thanks so much, Nick. It's a pleasure talking with you. I really enjoyed it. There you have it. Another great episode with Pamela. Be sure to send this episode to a leader of an organization, the leader of a team, the leader at a church, the leader of a group of any kind, or maybe in an aspiring leader. Because these are the lessons in communication and treating people the right way and governing ourselves in a way that respects others. Be sure you go grab a copy of The Leader's Guide to Unconscious Bias and learn more about Pamela at franklincovey.com. And look, if you're interested in having a clear path to hit your fitness goal and you want motivation, you want structure, then go to nickcarrier.com slash 10weekprograms. Again, nickcarrier.com slash 10weekprograms. Remember that bias is not inherently bad. It's the result of overstimulation of our brain, and it's the way our brain copes with it by creating cognitive shortcuts. But we still have to do something about it. We have to identify what biases we have, take responsibility for them, and take action accordingly so we don't let it diminish others and we don't let it diminish our own reputation. And be sure to start employing empathy, curiosity, and courage into your daily practice. It helps to cultivate connections with any individual, and that's only going to help you grow as a professional, grow as a leader, and just grow as a human being. Let's start putting this stuff into action tomorrow so that we can start getting closer and closer to your best you.